In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Good day to you all. Thank you for joining me during the holiday week. Hope you all had an enjoyable Christmas slash day off from work yesterday. And I can't think of better timing for the last episode of Religion Month, where the Data Monkey and I jump into what the polling data tells us about the role one's religion plays in one's voting patterns. What do you think we're going to find? Would you believe me if I told you that you're more likely to switch churches than you are to switch political parties? Listen and find out why. I'll be back at the end. Good day, Mike. Good day, Dan. Good. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm all right. I'm good. all right. Good, good. I'm excited. Good. I'm pumped. I'm excited to talk about this. It is an oddly apt time to be uh, talking about the subject of religion in politics on this winter solstice, December 21st, 2019, which we'll, we'll get into in a bit. I think before we get into the subject, there is something oddly relevant in my life I need to get off my chest, which is, I'd say it's probably like about, about a week ago now, Unburn, a friend of un- mine. Unburden yourself, Dan. Go um, ahead. Thank you. Please, please. It's, uh, yeah. So the, um, about a week ago, a friend of mine posted something on Facebook about how they had canceled the Polar Express at the kindergarten in our town. And it's basically like it's a your annual tradition. They play the Polar Express for all the kindergartners and it's a special day and blah, blah, blah. And I switched it to some, you know, holiday storytelling, blah, blah, blah event. And she was like, you know, why do they have to cancel this? Why do they have to ruin a good thing? It's always such a fun thing, right? Polar Express. Okay. I mean, let's take the, the blocky animation and sort of oddly dead and, eyes of the people in it, but sure. And and Tom Hanks playing every part. Yeah. I would like, you know what? I'm going to issue a challenge to Tom Hanks right now. Play a dick. Like, like I'm talking like, like cast yourself in the role of like Martin Shkreli or something like that. Is that how you pronounce it? The pharma bro guy? I think so. Yeah. Like that guy, he's, he's like, he gets lauded for his range and all this stuff. Like he has never played a dick, not once. Be the bad guy, Tom Hanks. One I of the one of the, one of the uh, you know fundamental key things about writing a profile piece uh-huh. in, in a publication on somebody is there should be yeah. some element of controversy or you learn something new about them. And right. a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times did this whole spread on Tom Hanks because he was going to be playing Mr. Rogers and their controversy was like effectively he's like so nice. He's too nice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I was like, really? Like, that's it. That's your controversy. That's your angle is that uh, he's just like the nicest, the nicest person in the world. (laughs) That's who we've become in the United States of America. That's who, like in 1950, every Hollywood star was like that. And they had some like, you know, secret, like they had, you know, ritual sacrifice in their basement or something like that. It's exactly the opposite with Tom Hanks. Like we do not feel comfortable because he's just too clean and he's got to have like a meth lab in the basement or, you know, something weird going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we've kind of been here, right? Didn't we all think of that as Bill Cosby at one point? True. 
Yeah, just saying. I mean, <sighs> not, trying, not trying to cast aspersions on Tom Hanks. I'm sure he's a very nice. Yeah, guy, but, but uh, careful but, what you wish for. But just remember that all we're saying is all I'm saying is that it seems like you know in the past when someone has been lauded as being like you know uh, perfectly clean, there's yeah. really something there's something hiding in the in the in the closet <sighs> or basement or under the floorboards as, or something. Ooh. I remember when the Me Too movement broke out, and I remember Sarah, my my wife, for those listening, said, "Please not Tom Hanks. Please not Tom Hanks." She was like, "He he was the he's the last corner purity in uh, in pop culture, I guess." But so so they show the Polar Express, and you know, obviously this woman is just a little pissed off. She posts on Facebook. So then, of course, all the predictable comments start coming about you know, the war on Christmas and Christians being persecuted all over the world and on and on. And, and, and I, I succumbed to my better judgment and didn't participate in it, but I, I just kind of sat and reflected on why I disagreed and why that comment bothered me. And I I think it breaks down to this, which is, you know, do you know, so you know the whole elf on the shelf thing, right? Oh yes. Do you guys do that? We do not. This was God. a. This was an absolutely. Uh, a, a, this was a specific decision I made to not participate in that. So what I did was I had to disclose the secret to my daughter that it was not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she couldn't tell any of her friends that it wasn't. But we're not doing it. Good for you. Good for you. Like basically. You know, so I have, anyone who's listening to this in their car with small children, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? To be frank, <laughs> you deserve it because I'm, I, you know, no apologies. I'm rescinding Mike's apology. Uh, so I feel good about it. Uh, but <laughs> so, <laughs> boy, I'm in a mood. So, so at any rate, you know, I was thinking about that because now again, for the folks listening, I have, I have four kids and then a foster kid. I have a lot going on, right? So every time somebody decides to add something fun, like so school has spirit day, bunny hat day, Patriots day, pajama, like it's day. pajama yeah. day, right? They all, oh, this is cool. We're going to do this. No, because for me, it's like five times the work, yeah. right? It's yeah. actually technically- and God, and God forbid you forget it's pajama day. And and now it's a, now it's a thing. Now you have to deal with the aftermath. Oh, a hundred percent. And now I'm and, and deal with like five times the aftermath. Now, of course, now I'm complaining on behalf of Sarah because she's actually the one who gets all the notices and really does all of that stuff. So, and you know, judge me as you will. It's just kind of the way it goes, unfortunately. But, um, but needless to say, she gets super stressed. I get stressed, and it's kind of like just you know, cut the shit, everybody just stop it. Like they, they can just go to school and like not do anything. And, and so I was, you know, so I, I was thinking about that whole tradition and like, and, and again, like the, the elf on the shelf is one of those things where it's like, just, you know, give me another thing to do, you know, put another thing on my calendar, please. Yeah. God help you. Yeah. Forget yeah. It, so. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're roped into this. Right. So then I, then I kind of put myself in the shoes of an observant Muslim. Right. So I'm a Muslim. Let's say I've got, let's say I have four kids or let's say I have two, who cares? Right. And so I'm living in, if I live in America, chances are I live in a predominantly Christian community. Right. So Christmas is all over the place. That's fine. You know, I could see myself like, I love the lights. It's cheery, you know, all that, you know, there's, there's something fun about it. Like it's kind of like, you know, a Chinese new year or something like I, I don't really care about it, but the fireworks and the dragons are nice. Right. Exactly. Now. Okay. Now. Add to this, 
your kids come home from school and they start asking about the elf and they start asking about Santa and they're like, well, you know, Santa comes to their house. What's going on here? Right. And so now I have to sit and either decide to participate in this or try and figure out some mechanism to like, keep that from keep, keep this aggravation from reaching critical mass. Right. Yeah. And so, and so I'm kind of holding my own. Right. Yep. But, and that's, and, and also take separate for a second. Imagine yeah. like in this scenario, right. You are also like, you can either, you then are forced to either go the full orthodox, right. Like we don't do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or you have to like, try to find an excuse. A hundred percent. And then to add to that. So that's, and again, like whatever, like, okay, that's fine. I'll deal with it. But then I got to send my kid to school and there's a movie that is entirely focused on Santa. Yeah. Like, how am I going to fight that? Yeah. How is my Muslim self going to fight that? You know, Mm -hmm. nobody has sympathy for me when I'm fasting during Ramadan. Nobody has sympathy for me when I have to pray to Mecca five times a day. You know, I got to figure out, I got to carve all that out and I'm cool with it. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm cool with it. I can't believe how well I am channeling my inner observant Muslim, but you know, (laughs) I'm I'm fine with that, but just don't like don't keep piling on, and that's kind of like and 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 so to be honest, like in closing, I, I'm I'm not like if the public schools just want to make it just holiday blank and keep it entirely like non Christmas related, forget about freedom of religion, forget about separation of church and state, forget about all that. Like I am I am for freedom from aggravation over other people's dumb shit thank you it's a yes exactly that that's i think you i think you've said it well it's how about instead of like complaining about a war on christmas we're actually to say this is just a a a war on on things that are going to piss me off um yes right (laughs) a a war on packing another thing in an already busy calendar Mm -hmm. you know so i think that's right but anyway, so, I, I mentioned at the start that I was pumped to get uh, to get into this conversation, mostly because I did most of the reading and research on this a couple of weeks ago, and then you and uh-huh. I were trying to find a land of time to 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 schedule this. Yes, and then when we did land on the time to schedule, it just happened to coincide with <laughs> the uh, with the the release of an editorial from Christianity Today uh, that was highly critical of the president. And caused, I, I think, at least as far as I could tell from scanning Twitter, uh, a, it was like dropping a megaton bomb on the uh, the evangelical community. Uh, so I'm <laughs> I'm fascinated to see the fallout. I haven't looked at any of the data on the polling, or and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people running around trying to figure out some data on this for and against. I do know the propaganda started like crazy, so it seemed like as I was driving home, I was sort of thinking about this last night. I was giddy over the fact that like. They just timed the steel cage match between religion and politics for the day before you and I were going to talk about this. Seriously. And, and I guess just to add some context there for those of you, I can't imagine there's somebody who is voluntarily listening to this and doesn't know this, but Christianity Today, a prominent evangelical magazine, released an op-ed basically saying that, it, they, that the time had come to impeach Trump, which for an evangelical source news source to turn against a republican much less the chosen one is uh 
is unusual. So sorry. So so go on there anyway. You were- no, so that, that was only my point that I just think it's interesting because we are, yeah. since the bigger part of our topic here today is to sort of talk about uh, <clears throat> religion and its influence on politics and vice versa. Yeah. This is certainly going to set up some significant cognitive dissonance amongst a group of people who have a extreme majority in favor of the uh, president that's that's kind of the, the crazy thing it'll be it, it'll be very interesting to see how it how it um you know how it all plays out and i know so you know, obviously you know i've been having i had a really interesting conversation last week with uh mark smith uh about how effectively the culture cultural norms change and religions will adapt to those cultural norms and then politicians will adapt to the religion effectively. Right. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the chain. What did you dig up on that? <clears throat> what if, what have you digged up sort of on? Yeah. So it's interesting. we can use this as the segue. Yeah. I, in thinking about this setup of this Christianity today article, I was mm-hmm. thinking, all right, so then what is my prediction based on what, I've read in the last right. few weeks and what I know as to what is going to happen here. Yeah. Okay. Sadly, I think my view of this at this point is that they will take a significant hit to their readership and that the full propaganda machine will absolutely try to destroy the magazine. Um, and so because my suspicion is that the, that the party will win over the religion in the sense that one of the points I think you and I talked about, we wanted to, that I was coming to from what I was reading and what I looked at in terms of the data was that you're kind of more likely to make your religion fit your uh, politics than the other way around. It's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, originally my, my perception from my conversation with Mark Smith was it sort of goes, you know, culture, let's call, I mean, let's just substitute people or opinion with culture. We're just going to call it culture, right? So it goes culture, religion, politics. But I think by nature of our culture, there's almost a feedback loop here. That's what which, I was, yeah, exactly. Right? I was going to say, I think he's got that sort of set up, but I actually think politics and culture are becoming so merged, like the political, um, you know, the, the, the partisan divide has become such a, a cultural touchstone that that's actually what's happening, right? Because we yeah. force because we're forcing that sort of quote tribalism into the cultural discussion, and that and it happens along a lot of lines, right? It's it's happening along different issue lines. It's happening along you know, I mean, take your take your pick of the different issues. It's sort of like you know, you can say Democrat Republican, you could say, but it falls then to every issue uh, itself, mm-hmm. and there's just kind of hardening along partisan lines and that's part of the cultural conversation and i think that partisanship from these cultural alignment is what is 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 overriding even religion yeah and you know that kind of makes sense i mean the thing i'm learning as i go into these conversations is that we tend to have opinions and then in america at least we rely on the constitution or religious text. We'll call it the Bible because again, the majority of people using religion as a springboard for their political beliefs are, are, are Christian. Um, you know, we kind of use those things to, and our interpretations of those things to justify our opinions effectively. 
That's and right. so, so again, kind of getting back to the whole like war on Christmas, Elf on the Shelf, Polar Express thing, you know, it, the only reason you're invoking the Constitution into this is because you just like, you just think the Polar Express, you're just aggravated. I don't know why you're aggravated, but you're just kind of aggravated. Maybe you feel like you're being diminished or something. I don't know, you know, something like that. But, but yeah, it's like, it's, it, it's, it seems to me that, you know, that again, when we look at like, when we look at the role religions played in politics in the last, you know, let's call it 40 years, 50 years, right? Yep. Um, the the way biblical texts have been used or the way Christianity specifically has been used is really weird because you think about it, right? The religion was founded by a dude who preached pacifism and the evils of materialism. And the party that that person is most closely identified with or the party that identifies closest with that person today is one that like routinely cuts food stamps to children and elected a dude who cheated on his third wife with a porn star. So it's like, I mean, yeah, you're looking yeah. for consistency. And like, I think that's what kind of the point, right? You'll make the beliefs yeah. fit sort of the, whatever partisan group you're now trying to make your al- align your, you know, yeah. your identity with. Uh, and that's yeah. where these types emerge. It becomes part of your identity and that identity and these, these kind of key things that you're, that's when you're talking about identity politics, right? You're just like that. This is, it becomes, becomes wrapped up in who you are. And that's where, you know, I don't know if you've ever followed sort of Jonah Goldberg. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he's, you know, he's a very, he's a very erudite, you know, conservative writer and whether you agree yeah. with him or not, I think he's one of the sort of the, well, I think he's one of the sort of better minds on the conservative side that talk about like these issues. And, you know, he wrote a book last year called Suicide of the West, which was just effectively talking about how you're, you know, this de- devolving back into tribalism is like the first yeah. way to completely unwind the enlightenment, right? That, you know, you undermine the things that led to our prosperity, like science and technology and all these things will come unwound if we start to just fall back into complete tribalism. Apologies mm-hmm. to Jerry Goldberg if I just summar- summarized his book in a horrible way <laughs> and he disagrees <laughs> with the way I did it. Uh, but, you know, for ho- hopefully he's a, he's a, maybe maybe he'd even be listening and that would be uh, alone would be incredible mm-hmm. but but i think that's the kind of the key here is that you know even the idea of that language like a war on christmas you either watch like the words that get used right and i think mm-hmm. you know the using like terminology of a war you're already now talking about sort of fighting between elements and that, yeah. and so by definition you know, that sort of promotes tribalism, right? It's a way of, it's a soft way of promoting tribalism. There is like an other that is trying to take something away from you as a group. Yeah. And so that it's just this, it's this soft propaganda that's meant to, or maybe that's not even the right way to say it. It's right. Hard propaganda when you're talking about war, but, but it's specifically meant to, to sort of create a threat and therefore mm-hmm. like that, that binds together sort of a tribal group. Yeah, and I think people too ought to ought to take note of the fact that like this whole war on Christmas dialogue or you know Christians are being persecuted. This is kind of an echo again of the 1970s and I keep going back to this. Uh, I keep going back to Nixon's courting of of southern voters and the necessity of courting evangelicals as part of that. And that strategy was based in part because Nixon's biggest enemies were the counterculture. These are people who had abandoned religion, abandoned what had been cultural norms, 
and were viewed as a threat by people who still held to those norms and held to those values. And so this sort of division is is just an echo of that effectively. And the, the players have changed, but the the tone really hasn't, which is ultimately you have this sort of like amoral group of people who are looking to take away everything you hold dear effectively. Right. I mean, there's sort of something interesting there too, considering that, you know, I mean, just a level set, 70% of the country is Christian. Yeah. Half of those are, are evangelical Protestants and then another 20% Catholics and then, you know, Mormons and others, but the majority of the country is effectively calls themselves Christian. Yeah. So yeah. What do you worry about? You got um, seven, you know. Like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, that, I just think that's a, a, an interesting point because yeah. all of this becomes, you know, sort of what's happening beneath and the discussions happening within, you know, under the underlying trends. But um, we'll get to some and the demographics, so we can we can get to some of that as we go through this. Okay. But, but you know, we talked about so coming back to that partnership, partisanship is stronger than religion potentially, and we can sort of touch on some of the on the data here. I mean, a couple mm-hmm. things I'd maybe point out. So interestingly that, so when you talked about bringing in religion and politics, I would say we end up talking a lot about Christianity and specifically, I think you and I are talking a lot about, and I think a lot of these conversations have been around uh, evangelical Protestantism yeah. because that's, because that's actually, I think it's just such a dominant part of it. I mean, we, we could spend time sort of talking about, and we could have got into more data around sort of political affiliations of these subgroups, but all these subgroups are really, you know, generally kind of one, 2% of the populace. Mm-hmm. And the biggest group that's, you know, outside of say 70% Christians, like the biggest group outside of that is unaffiliated, right? So either agnostic or, um, you know, atheist or just kind of nothing. Um, yeah. or just you're present. Yes, <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> so that's, uh, like 20, 23%, I think, uh, of the total, um, is, is sort of just the, so you're really talking about, so, so I don't know that I think in the context of U S politics and talking about this stuff, it's really not like, I think we end up, if you're going to talk about religion and politics, it really tends to be all about evangelical Protestantism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, and so I, I think it's interesting because, you know, again, talking about that I, identity politics and religious identity, I think it's interesting to see that, like, the the Pew, again, the Pew data would say that around 35% or half of those Christians in the U.S., right, consider themselves evangelical or born again. Mm-hmm. But already that's an interesting thing because they've self-identified that way, right? Yeah. But then, you know, there's data by the Barna Group, which is a research firm that specializes in religious issues. And they're interestingly, you know, they take a different definition instead of asking you, you know, are you, how do you, you know, what do you identify yourself as, or do you consider yourself this? Mm -hmm. They're actually asking you specific questions, right? So they give a series of questions and then rate you as to whether or not you actually would be considered born again in the evangelical, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, asking questions like, you know, does salvation come from grace uh, or from works? Did Jesus lead a sinless life? I mean, these these things that would be should be hardcore beliefs that yeah. would define you as uh, as an actual born again evangelical Christian. And um, by their data, now again, maybe they're being extremely stringent, but by their data, only six percent of Americans are evangelical. So already, you've actually 
you you sort of have this self-identification question, which I think is becomes, it's not really about practice, right? It's about an idea, building an identity. Yeah. Um, I'll reference a couple of things from, you know, a book that I thought was extremely helpful in sort of understanding something because it was a very good uh, data, which is from politics to the pews, which was a, a book that came out actually just last year. Mm-hmm. And so it, it unpacks a lot of this. And I thought it was interesting. She cites like a study of religious identification when, you know, this is a, a psychologist setting up this or sociologist setting this up. And they did a religious identification when you're primed with partisan content showed an increase in your religious identification within the partisan group. So Republicans were more likely to consider themselves religious when they were primed with Republican content. Mm-hmm. So, like, so if you ask the question, you know, if I first show you a bunch of GOP stickers and then ask you whether you're how much, you know, whether you consider yourself born again, right? Like you're more likely to say that if I've shown you the propaganda uh, ahead of that, which is, God. right. So it just, yeah. again, it's, it fits to this idea that I think, you know, at least based on the, the, the data I looked at, that this is more about, it becomes more about an identity and about like attaching yourself to a group than it is really about the oftentimes the practice. Super interesting. It's, I don't want to get too off topic. I don't want to derail you here too, too much, but you know, one of the things that I've, I've found uh, as I've started to have discussions with a lot of different people is people kind of like jump to a conclusion very quickly based on what you start discussing. And so a great example is I was talking with a, a very pro-Trump, friend of mine about the idea of proportional representation, right? And the idea that if the House of Representatives were elected proportionally as opposed to by district, it would actually moderate the conversation quite a bit. So he jumps straight to the Electoral College. Yep. You know, no, 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 the Electoral College has to stay. And it's like, I didn't say anything about the Electoral College. So in a lot of ways, as, as you're telling me all this, you know, I'm thinking like the nature of modern politics is really to kind of short circuit any thought process in a way. And so help you, for example, see Republican Christ good and help you kind of see all those things together. So when somebody starts maybe challenging one aspect of your political stance, they're effectively like challenging, like, did Christ die on the cross for your sins at the same time? If anything we're fighting against, it's that people have a tendency when someone says something like what you just said, like you, you in this in this in this discussion you you were telling the story about, mm-hmm. that when you propose something, that people's reaction is not to ask you a question or follow up question, it's to immediately search their brain for the right talking point that they've mm-hmm. already been pre primed with in order mm-hmm. to respond. Right. I need to mm-hmm. shift this. And, it, and it's like, I'll sh- and if they've been primed with a lot of anecdotes around the uh, electoral college debate, then their brain will try to shift the conversation to the electoral college. Even that's not what you were talking about because they know they have, they're armed with a bunch of talking points under that file. Yeah. Right. It's like, and it's this insane sort of like, you know, need to retain that continuity with their, their identity and their belief system that they've kind of bought into. And I guess I, you know, and this is sort of, again, what, what I think we're trying to trying to do some a bit with this. It's like, you know, oftentimes they say like in life, you should find your tribe, right? Like you should mm-hmm. fi- find your tribe. I guess I'd say, yeah, but like if it comes 
prepackaged and sold to you, be very wary. Yeah. Right. Um, anyway, that's sort of enough of my editorializing. Let's go on nah, to uh, some, of, some more of this data because there is some um, to come back to sort of what we were talking about, uh, getting in line with these beliefs. I, you know, I think it's interesting because Trump, you pointed out, you know, is certainly not the poster child for, um, you know, live as I do in terms of uh, evangelical uh, Protestantism, right? I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he only really goes to church for uh, funerals and weddings. Um, yeah. He's, you know, despite his uh, claims to be a Bible reader, I, I, I suspect that's probably not really the case. I don't think he's really much of a reader, period. I think that's been pretty well established. Um, like maybe the Bible on tape... I, you know, that seems like a lot of commitment to time to listening. <laughs> and, he's, and, he, and he's got to block off at least 10 hours a day to listen to the art of the deal. So, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, um, but, the, but to come back to, I mean, so, you know, I think interestingly that the majority of evangelical Protestants in 2015 as in the lead up to the election, right? So about 56% held an unfavorable view of Trump and they did not like him. But within, you know, just like six months, they were able to switch that to a majority of them now held a favorable view of him. Right. So, okay. so once the machine sort of started to say, no, he's our guy, everybody just sort of went all in on him um, and that they were willing to sort and they'll get their, they probably react. I suspect the reactions to them were really about that. He was not, you know, not very cool Christian, right? He's just yeah. not very like his behaviors. He's, he's been divorced multiple times. He's cheated on his wife very publicly. He's had, mm -hmm. you know, he's, you know, many behaviors that I think would be considered quote immoral. I and mean, this is actually what the Christianity today editorial was sort of touching on as well. Right. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious that he's kind of an immoral character. So then the, by, so it would make sense that they would sort of have an like looking at the the Republican field, they would have a negative view of him. But then within six months, they had changed that, and the majority now had a favorable view of him. Just to repackage what you're saying there, you know, when first introduced to Donald Trump, people didn't find that he had aligned with their religious views, and so therefore they did not support him. When he became the only option they figured out a way that he aligned with the religious views. Is that, I think that's right. I yeah. That's okay. Right. right. And now, and now it's reached the point where they're, where effectively he's, you know, the second coming, right. He's not he's yeah. doing, he's doing more for quote Christians than any president ever has and, or in some way. I'm not sure that I'd buy that. And I, I've yet to, I've yet to hear someone actually elucidate other than putting judges on the, on the courts, how, wh what he's done that would be, of lasting benefit. And in fact, I'd actually try to, I would actually argue, and we'll get to the demographic time bomb um, that this strategy has uh, yeah. or expiration date it has attached to it is I wonder, you know, is he like, this is sort of question. I mean, there'd, there'd be a lot of data you'd have to try to find to, to sort of understand this and it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to unpack in the future, but is, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a Christian or an evangelical Protestant, family with children is this the model like by is this the model that you'd want them to see and if by supporting him doesn't that sort of i mean you you and i both are kids so we know kids not only hear what you say they watch what you do um yeah. and if they 
is it potential that he's actually even undermining the future of Protestantism? That's more of a question than anything else, hmm. because I wonder about by sort of aligning with a leader that and aligning with something that would end up being very hypocritical, right? In the way that the things that you say versus what this person does, but yet somehow saying that that's so positive that he's fighting for Christians. That, yeah. it, that, that it's that it's not actually gonna in the long run actually do more damage to Christianity in the US. Question. Yeah. It's a question. Just a it's, question. I I think there's I think there's some anecdotal proof to that. You know, I just I think of my own parents who went to mass every week, you know, Catholic mass every week, and we had to go every week. And then once the clergy sex abuse scandal came out, they just they stopped they kind of lost their passion for it. And right. so they kind of, they stopped going. And then, you know, I mean, I've, since I started taking my kids, they've kind of come back, but it's never been, it, it's never been what it was. And so uh, I, I definitely think if, if that is any evidence, and I know I'm not the only, you know, person who that's happened to, or not the only, you know, family that's happened to, you know, if that's the way it, it's go, it, it went down, then yeah, you would you would assume that uh, eventually there'd be a group of people who would just drop out because the church no longer represented their values or represented values that they felt were reprehensible. Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of previous what we were we we're going to get to on on demographics yeah. because that it, you can see that you know that there's actually a um, a life what they call a life cycle, uh, okay. you know, theory of this that. You know, you can see across teenagers and people into their 20s, there's a decline in religious activity. So if you were, you know, if you're, it's exactly what you're saying, right? If your family yeah. took you to church or really like, it doesn't even matter which religion you are. You just tend to, in your late teens and into your 20s, whatever you were raised, like your attendance to activities will go down. Like your, it falls pretty much uniformly. I think the number is around 30% that mm -hmm. it falls after you, um, once you're into your 20s. And then what they find is that, if you return to religion, it will happen when you have like school age children. Mm -hmm. And then once you set that in place, and that's roughly around 36 years of age, but it's not the age. It tends to be, it's more, it has to do more with the, the having school age children. So like yep. that tends to center around 36 years or so um, age. Then if you return at that point, you're pretty much set and you're not going to really change. And people very rarely change their their affiliations like after that, like after 50 yeah. years old. Right. So like, there's no real, once you start, if you come back, once you're back, that's kind of your thing and that's what you do. Yeah. But interestingly, that does break down again, like across sort of some party lines. What you see is like looking at uh, religious non-identifiers, you know, within Republic, uh, within the Democrats, that's, that's going up um, mm -hmm. far faster than it is under Republicans. And then you look at regular church attendance, by percentages, like in Demo amongst Democrats, it's falling, and in Republicans, it is it is kind of has actually ticked up in the last ten years. It, it sounds like, I guess, the Republican body as a whole, or being Republican, is indicative or is correlated to your likelihood to attend church services. Then, yeah, and that's and that sort of fits again with that identity. What we're saying, like this, is, if that activity, you're more likely to start doing that if you are, you know, you're now I. If your identity is now wrapped up in this sort of um, not only the religious behavior, but also your party. So to, to your point about like the conversation you were saying where, you know, a 
you know, an attack on one point, you know, is suddenly attack on Jesus, right? Like that, yeah. you know, <laughs> if I attack Trump, I'm attacking Jesus. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. Like, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that's not, listen, but that becomes, if you, it's almost like, you know, because I'm Republican, I should go to church more. You know what I mean? There's like this, because now, because that's all sort of one identity all wrapped up together. And, yeah. and the reason I say that and, and why I'm kind of, again, this is just basically on a, you know, as, as, I, as I've said in multiple ones of these, I'm an idiot. I don't know much about any of these things. <laughs> I just stumble in. I look at like a bunch of the data, try to read a bunch of things. And then you and I have a conversation that's hopefully informative to at least a few other people. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, so I came to some of these conclusions by, again, looking at some of how this data lines up and, it, you know, looking at issue data is another place where you can see this kind of identity at work, like that you, you make your religion fit your, your partisan view. Right. Yeah. And you can see that because, you know, take for example, like views of, you know, I think, well, I think like homosexuality and gay marriage is a good one, right. Or, or same sex yeah. marriage, because that's one that seems to fit along a religious line. It happens yes. like it's a political debate, but it is one that would fit also along a religious line or abortion. Like those are ones mm-hmm. again that like, I think we can say. And so we, you look at homosexuality by religious group, uh, not surprisingly, like 55% of evangelical Protestants would say it should be discouraged, right? Like mm-hmm. that's okay. That, that would make sense. I mean, kind of according to your point, and we can get into sort of the frequency of reference as something in the Bible that we should look at, but, you know, to your conversation you had uh, in your, in the last episode, that there are some concrete references to in the Bible events against homosexuality. So if you, it yeah. would make sense that that would be the case. Similarly, uh, you know, on abortion, it would say views about abortion by a religious group, 63%, you know, it should be illegal in all or most cases, you know, that's that evangelicals, right? And that's far more than almost twice as much as any other religious group. And so, you, again, that, that makes sense, right? So, okay, those, that's sort of a religious like, mm-hmm. thing. But then you start, then it starts to get a little weirder <laughs> because then we start seeing some of these issues really break more by party than religion, right? So mm-hmm. um, how about their view of the size of the government by religious group, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're an evangelical Protestant, you are like 50 to 100% more likely than other religious groups to say that a smaller government with fewer services is what we should have. Well, I, that, yeah. I mean, that's fine. I mean, there's a debate over small government and, and bigger government. That's for sure, right? Like, I, I, I'm totally on board with that. Yeah. But I start to question, like, why is that breaking down along religious lines? Um, that would seem like it should be sort of split within it just because you're within a religion we should have these ideological splits should be somewhat more even right like yeah you you either believe in like smaller governments or larger government but why does that have anything to do with your belief in you know jesus christ as your savior yeah <laughs> like, like i'm not sure i follow why that would be a majority other than you've been kind of a bit propagandized and then i think you can take it one level further what would that government be doing so how are your views about government aid to the poor? Yeah. How, how does that, how does that look? And again, we find like it when asked, you know, and this is a, again, a Pew um, data, does it do more harm than good? And within evangelical Protestants and Mormons who also vote like 80% for Republicans. Yeah. Again, you, you're like, 
50 to 100% more likely to say it does more harm than good for government aid to the poor. I mean, again, we can have that debate, but like as to whether or not, you know, you want to teach a man a fish or give him a fish. But like, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm confused as to why these would be that a majority of Christians in these groups would see government aid as, uh, as, as uh, like doing more harm than, than positive other than you have like, you have an economic ideological agenda in your head and that has nothing to do with your religious belief. No. I mean, the only thing related to government or the size of taxation I can think of is render unto Caesar. Mm-hmm. That's it. So render folks. But yeah. I mean, so that's what that would be. Shut it. <laughs> that's it. That's, but that's an endorsement for paying your taxes. Well, hundred percent. That's not a Paul Ryan anti-tax view. That's a, no, uh, no, no. You know, now, so the interesting thing kind of going into that is obviously you know, I I dug a little bit into uh, the role that you know, race plays in this as well. And one of the interesting statistics I found was that if you divide up, and, and Catholics actually are the easiest population to analyze because Catholics predominantly break into either white or Hispanic. You know, those are the two biggest uh, contingents. If you break the voting patterns of white Catholics apart from Hispanic Catholics, what you find is that they vote more along racial lines than they do religious ones. That's right. Yeah, if I'm a Hispanic Catholic, I am more likely to vote Democrat and white Catholic more likely to vote Republican. And the trend lines are very closely aligned. What did you did you find other stuff that backed that up as well? Or? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think you and I came to the same one. I mean, you landed on the Hispanic Catholics, and I think that's a great that's a great one. Um, yeah. But you see it, but you see it within Protestant too, because you know, eighty two percent of um, you know, attendees at historically black Protestant churches identify as or lean Democrat. You can see the spectrum running from, you know, I think the, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is 64% Republican, 26% Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as we say, like the, you get down to the, the National Baptist Convention, which is 87% Democrat and 5% Republican. So that's, mm-hmm. that's really breaking down along a racial line more than anything else it kind of harkens back to this whole concept of identity and and in some cases religion being a a reinforcement of that identity in a way that really yeah. ties it to a you know really kind of stakes it into the ground and it seems to me that this is unique amongst evangelicals that this sort of morphing or this merging of political identity with religious identity is a very white evangelical thing it's, I mean, it's and it's been an active strategy it would seem like or at least yeah. i think it, it was i don't know if it was on it wasn't so much that i think republicans yeah, you know, the republican party actively staked out this space or i think maybe it was simultaneous that at, at the yeah. same time you also had religious figures like pat robertson and stuff in the late 70s and they yep. really made a push into politics right because his prior to that it would seem like from what i read you know this was the religious leaders actually stayed away from politics generally for, yes. most, for most of the 20th century. They tried to stay out of it. And then there mm-hmm. was sort of this active, you know, intentional move into politics. Yeah. And I don't think like, I don't think it was, you know, Nixon's getting back to that, that whole Southern strategy. I don't think it was, I don't think it was Nixon's intent to weave religion into it, but I think it was a very convenient vehicle uh, because you know, ultimately he couldn't come 
right out and say that to to you know white southerners like well the democratic party betrayed you because you have to use the bathroom with black people now he couldn't come out and say that in the 1970s what he could say is he could he could sort of like skirt around the edges yeah and he could use the dog whistle right yeah exactly like law and law and order was the big one yeah and and obviously like also again if you want to declare war on the counterculture start talking about values and so it just it creates a very convenient path for religion to sort of trickle its way in and then of course by the time reagan comes in you know he's fully adopted uh this group of people and and they're fully mobilized and and ready to vote and and again if you look at the former confederacy you know how are they voting no i I think that's right and and i thought your conversation you know uh, your last conversation actually i really nailed this that some of these you know these issues that become the touch points um are really because it's like the stake in the ground like abortion becomes the one because it becomes this sort of theoretical like all right this is the line we're drawing in the sand on on giving on on this changing you know moral structure in the US right or like that we see this changing and evolving and but this is the line in the sand this is the this is where we're going to the hill we're going to die on is this issue yeah and that's an issue too that has has not softened at all so if you look at gay marriage for example virtually every religious sect has softened on gay marriage the abortion issue seems to be hard and fast. Like you are either, you are either pro or anti, you know, one. Yeah, no, and, 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 you know, pretty, and the anti is pretty much like every sort of possible version of it. You know, life begins at conception. Um, I'll stir the pot here with one observation that, you know, we were talking about these, these uh, issues have a ten your, your party identity starts to leak into the religious identity such that, you know, your, your views on topics that would not seem to be related to religion end up having some, um, you know, seemingly fall then into religious lines. So an example of that is two thirds of white evangelicals say that immigrants are a burden to the country because they take American jobs. Yeah. Is that, I'm not, I'm puzzled as to why that would necessarily be a white evangelical position. And here's where I'm going to really stir the pot. So if someone was to sneak across uh, the border and become impregnated, isn't that fetus now an American citizen? Yeah. Just LOL. <laughs> just asking the question. Cause if it's, cause when does, when do, if, if it has rights that need to be protected, aren't those rights then theoretically, I'm asking the question. I don't know. I'm just, these would seem like if you're going to pick a line and try to say it's hard and fast, well then that that's going to, that's going to leak into your other beliefs. That you have to, yeah. if you're going to try to be consistent, then that would be the that would be yeah. the one that I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'd be curious to hear it debated. Yeah, well, and and I know we we poked a lot of holes in in evangelicalism specifically. The one thing I would cite, and this is something I got in my you know my, my conversation earlier this month with uh, David Scott, who is a Christian conservative you know, if you were to boil him down to his most, to his simplest identity. But if you peel back the layers a bit, what you find is that there's, there are some elements of his voting patterns that match his religious ideology, but he doesn't view the two as married, you know? And so I want to make sure that that's, that's clear too, that like there are, there are 
a lot of folks who sort of fit that mold. Uh, but there are, but in the broader Christian on the evangelical side, but uh, they're in the broader sort of group of maybe people who'd be in the outer circle of conservative Christianity. They're not always, you know. I think that's a good point because even every data we've cited, right? I'd say majority of, but that means by definition there's a minority a group yeah. in there that doesn't agree with it, right? Or doesn't vote a certain way, or doesn't think that. Like it's just interesting to see. Like obviously the majority tends to be how we then define the group, but. It doesn't mean that every individual necessarily thinks that way. Exactly, exactly. And, and the reason I'm saying that too is because, you know, I'm sort of stepping on my own theory here, which is whether it makes sense or not, you know, people, people's ideologies, what people hold dear tends to be mixed together. It's like, it's intertwined. And so it is very, the reason these topics are sometimes difficult to talk about is because you can't help but start to poke fun at stuff. And the instant you do, you're kind of like, it's like a game of Jenga, you know, and you're just removing the bottom piece and everything else comes falling down. Right. And so I definitely don't want to like trigger a bunch of people. No, I, I, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Cause I, I agree. I don't want anyone to be coming away from this, that we have a, you know, a negative view of either, you know, religion or either necessarily either, party it's more just the tactics and the overall division and partisanship that we tend to i think you and i would be sort of uh pushing back against like we'd ask people i'd ask people to engage with these issues and ask questions as to why they think certain ways and and maybe maybe go so far as to even look up some data to try to to try to get to an answer not to just bolster your preconceived belief right like yeah i mean this is kind of what we're i think we're we're probably advocating for more than anything else is is you know don't Again, don't 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 just join up with the group that sold their membership to you. Like, <laughs> like yeah. um, you know, you can you can you can break down across different lines, and there are people are uh, you know should should can and should be um, a you know a bundle of sometimes even conflicting identities. Right? You don't yeah. necessarily have to just get in line with one specific thing and, and have to believe every single part of it. As much yeah. as there is a like almost evolutionary imperative in your, in your you know, biology to want to join a, like a tribe and join to a group. It, it's there, it's real, but you know, be, be cognitively mindful of it. Yeah. And now I, I guess kind of getting back. So obviously like the religious identity or the religious portion of the Republican party, it, 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 it it's almost like a guaranteed voting block and is that like is that ultimately why they're such a powerful sect is it just the fact that they're going to turn out every year and vote republican or is there more to it it is they will turn out pretty reliably when you know using these values quote triggers until they drop dead because that's the that's the problem, right? Because okay. this is this has got a demographic expiration date on this strategy. So again, if yeah. I'm, a, I'm a betting man, which you know by by for what I do for a living, I am kind of a little bit of a betting man. <laughs> just a share, um, just a shade, yeah. Uh, I I suspect that the Republican Party is going to look very different in 15 years than it does now. Um, it's going to it's going to change a lot of its platform to line up with a new group because i 
you know, people who extra, tend to extrapolate, people always tend to do this, right? You, you don't, you don't, they don't look for oscillations, they look for extrapolations and they take worst case scenarios and extrapolate them into the future. And, and mm-hmm. then they say, well, this, if this is happening and you draw the straight line, then it's going to be this extreme, you know, later, right? And we're doing it right now. I mean, in, in popular culture, right? We're, we're like, you know, the, the handmaid's tale is like, you know, this sort of commentary on like, what if, you know, conservatism just keeps going insane and we're, you know, like women are back to being subjugated, like, okay, maybe, but mm-hmm. maybe probably it's actually just going to go the other way at some point. Like, yeah. because I think what ends up happening is that, um, you know, the party will want to stay relevant and the organism will move to stay relevant. And therefore mm-hmm. when it finally embraces this potential demographic expiration date or time bomb here, I think, that um, it, it's going to have to reckon with that. And so why don't, so I'm giving a lot of preview without giving a lot of data here. Uh, 62% of white evangelical Protestants are at least 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the median age, so meaning median, meaning 50% less, 50% more, 50% of all white evangelical Protestants are over the age of 55. Um, so now, as we said earlier, like once you're over 50, you're pretty aligned to your religion. That's not going to change. You're kind of aligned. You're definitely aligned in your partisanship. That doesn't change. Yeah. But unless we come up with a way for people to live to be 110 and keep getting to a voting booth, like that's, they're just going to start to decline in their ability to actually get out and be part of the conversation. And interestingly, when you look at half of, you know, or almost half of um, white evangelical Protestants under the age of 30, say their church should adjust traditional beliefs and practices, you know, and adopt more modern beliefs and practices, right? So if the bet is that they're going to harden up in their beliefs as they get older, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. I think they're going to force a change in the sort of leadership of the the church and the parties. Uh, I mean, millennial women are, you know, 80% of the births in the United States, right? I mean, these are there's a whole nother demographic way of coming. And I think you brought it up that, you know, that I think the um, same sex marriage and the acceptance of sort of gay and lesbian and transgender and anything, that's, that's actually an important point because that's one of the break points, I think, right. Um, almost 30% of Americans who've left a religion explicitly mention like the negative talk about gay and lesbian people as one of the causes for their disaffiliation. So yeah. when you see like the rise in unaffiliated, and I think at my personal view, I, again, I don't have the data on hand to talk about it, but I think you and I talked about it offline a little bit. Like the, I think that just comes down to as it's become more acceptable to be out in the open about being, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender, the, everybody knows somebody who is, and it's really hard to demonize people, you know, um, Mm-hmm. And I think that that becomes where it creates this, you know, again, like cognitive dissonance, like a schism in what you're being told or what you're supposed to be thinking, and then your reality. And right, and when it comes to that, you'll you really it's it gets harder and harder to sort of to accept something where um, you know where you see evidence of the contrary every day. I guess then to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning. So we have this article in Christianity Today. We have all this tumult that's following. So how do you think this all plays out then? Ooh, all right. So coming back to that point, like I, I think the, the, the body politic is going to try to reject this publication 
That's my suspicion. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. there's going to be a, a quote backlash within the um, evangelical community, Republican Party against Christianity Today. It may even see a drop in its readership potentially, um, and that, but not not a hundred percent, right? It's not going to be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's just it's the, they're going to take some heat from their own community for that stance. I yeah. just, I suspect this is me just prognosticating here, but like, yeah. but I I've, based on what we know about this, I think there's going to be a visceral reaction from those who have kind of lined up their identity um, to that. This doesn't fit with what, how they thought about it, which means they either have to shift or they have to reject. And I think yeah. there's going to be a, a big portion of them that reject and there's going to be some that may accept and we'll see it in the polling. I mean, we can look, it'd be really interesting to see the polling after this. I've got to think yeah. that, I got to think there's poll. There are pollsters who are jumping all over this to sort of see if it's if it's causing any shift within the um, the white evangelical community over the next few weeks. So ultimately, it's it's people will choose politics over religion. Yeah, ultimately. it seems it seems that we've gone. That, it seems that we've gone that way. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you'd rather so. drop your religion because it doesn't fit with your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or vice versa, you'll get even more religious if it fits with your beliefs. Um, but your beliefs are sort of almost separate from that. In essence, our, our politics have become so tribalized that it will actually ultimately overcome religion in terms of uh, in terms of how we choose or who we choose to align with. So that, and that Tom Hanks died for our sins. <laughs> Those are there the two things. <laughs> <laughs> what we would Tom just, Hanks do? I'm going to make that bumper sticker. WWTHD. <laughs> so there are a few things I picked up in my month of interviews. One is that for many, the intersection of religion and politics is really coincidental. And a lot of people who invoke the name of religion for political reasons are usually trying to tie their candidacy or their party to a contentious social issue that'll guarantee votes, such as we see with gay marriage or with abortion. And at the same time, the way people experience the world and the way they vote is shaped more by race and ethnicity than anything else. And we saw this a few episodes back with Anam Hussein, who experienced more friction in her life for being a woman of color than for being Muslim. Or in this episode, where we saw that black evangelicals, Hispanic Catholics, and their white counterparts often vote more in line with others of their racial and ethnic background than their religion. And this brings me back to September when we were discussing the two-party system. And we reached the conclusion that in an electoral environment like the United States, where you only need to win one more vote than the second highest vote-getter to win office, rather than needing a majority of voters, identity politics just works because if you can tie your candidacy or your party to an issue core to someone's identity whether it's race guns religion you, know, you can more or less ignore all of the other things government's supposed to do and you know pundits complain about identity politics but the fact is that's the only kind of politics there is in this country and you know, until we move away from the winner-take-all system of congressional apportionment that we have now this is going to be the rule rather than the exception. So chew on that. Now, to kick off 2020, we're going into debt. Literally, in the sense that the government will be spending billions and billions of dollars it won't take in in tax revenue, and figuratively, in the sense that that's the topic we'll be discussing for January. So 
We're kicking it off with David Thompson, professor of history at Sacred Heart University, who's going to bring us up to speed on the history of our national debt and what we can glean from it to deal with our multi-trillion dollar problem. As always, theme music by Fellertack, engineering by my producer, Jason Putney, who makes my days merry and bright. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.